All right, open up to Deuteronomy chapter 9 on your pages or digital biblical devices. I want to paint a scene for you. It's, it's early dawn, breaking over a lake in Israel. A couple Jewish fishermen and their friends are eating breakfast on the shore. And this moment is, there's a lot of like friendship in here. Um, there's closeness, but there's also a tension. And this tension reaches its peak as one man, for the third time, asks another, Peter, do you love me? And it's in this moment that Peter remembers and thinks about, with great sadness, the tenuous nature of his relationship right now with the man asking this question. See, Christ is asking Peter if he loves him three times, just like Peter had denied Jesus three times. There was a breach in this relationship. And Peter might well at this point be wondering, where exactly do I stand? What is going to happen? And, and there might have been a lot of insecurity in that moment. A lot of, um, a, 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 a lot of just recognizing the fact that he had walked closely with God for three years in ministry and then utterly betrayed him, knowing full well who this was knowing full well what was expected of him. And yet, he could not stay faithful. What would Jesus do in response to that? How would he act? Now, if we take this moment and kind of freeze it in time for a second and think about the insecurity and the instability of Peter at this moment, we can probably think a little bit about a similar moment. 3,000 years earlier, in the lives of some of Peter's great, 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 great grandfathers back in, on Mount Sinai uh, in, the, in the wilderness. And that's the picture, that's the, the instability that we find ourselves in, in the middle of Deuteronomy uh, chapter 9, kind of at the end of it. There's a chapter break right in the middle of our text today. Um, we're going from 925 all the way through 10.5. Um, you know, sometimes... Those chapter breaks are helpful a lot of times. Well, a lot of times they're helpful. Sometimes they're not. This is one of the not cases. Um, and that's okay. But think about for a second, so that we can understand this text, the, the tough nature of where, where Israel stands. There is, if you think about like peace negotiations and how important those are, in like any kind of war or any kind of um, treaty between nations, and how like public relations and international relations, political um, friendships, and these kind of things are so important, and how just a little spark, like I don't know World War One and um, an assassination, can set off an entire world into war. You can imagine that in those moments of negotiations tension can run high, and there can be a lot of concern about that instability of that relationship at that point. In Deuteronomy, we're thinking about the most important, we're looking at, really, the most important 
peace negotiation in human history. Far enough. Deuteronomy is a covenant, right? It's an agreement between God and a people, Israel. How are they going to relate to each other? What is the basis for their relationship? What is the historical background of their relationship? And what are the terms of this agreement? What are the terms of this relationship between God, the divine sovereign, and his vassal nation, Israel? Right? That's what we're looking at. At the heart of this agreement is what? The Ten Commandments. We already saw that in chapter 5. That's where Moses specifically calls it a covenant. He calls it an agreement. And that story, Moses kind of had paused it so that we could talk about obedience for three chapters in 6 through 8, right? And he talks about discipleship, and he talks about um, overcoming their spiritual enemies, and he talks about obedience in a lot of adverse circumstances. But now, as he's kind of coming out of it, he, he remember, he's talking now about self-righteousness. And we spent all of last week talking about how really bad off Israel is. And at the heart of that incident was the breakdown of these peace negotiations. And this text is going to say a little bit more about it, but I want to kind of recap by getting a running start from last week's um, message and, and kind of propelling into this one because uh, the, the context is so important here that we need to see it. So, so I'm going to start at verse 9, okay? So verse 9, Moses is saying, When I went up to the mountain to receive the tablets of stone. Now, we pause right there and just think about these tablets of stone are the tablets, he says, of the covenant Yahweh made with you. So this is the written agreement between God and his people Israel. And Moses has it, and he's going, he's on the mountain, and he remains on the mountain, right? And the Lord gives him that. And the whole point is, he's going to get this coming, and he's going to come down, and, and they are going to have an agreement, a peaceful agreement with how they can relate to God, how they can have a relationship with this God. But here's what happens instead. Verse 12, Yahweh says to me, Arise, go down quickly from here, for your people, whom you have brought out of Egypt, have acted corruptly. They've turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. They've made themselves a metal image. And furthermore, Yahweh said to me, I've seen this people, and behold, it's a stubborn people. Leave me alone, and I may destroy them and blot out their name from under heaven. So I turned and came down the mountain. The mountain was burning with fire. I had the two tablets in my hands, and I looked. And man, you had sinned against Yahweh your God. You had made yourselves a golden calf. You had turned aside quickly from the way that Yahweh had commanded you. So I took hold of the two tablets and threw them out of my hands. And broke them before your eyes. I just imagine these tablets shattering on the ground. And Israel, with horror, looking as the covenant is visibly broken. The agreement is over. And God is saying, I want to destroy this people. They have brought my wrath. Remember, Moses is bringing up the scene for a really important reason. He's arguing. He's making a case. This is very pastoral. Moses is making a case that, verse 6, Know therefore Yahweh your God is not giving this good land to possess to you because of your righteousness. Because you're a stubborn people. So he's, he's letting them know that when they get in this land, when they get into this state of rest with God, 
that they cannot look back on that time and think, man, I'm real good. I'm, I'm super religious. I have great integrity. I'm real cool with God. God likes me better than these other people. He says, no, you can't think that. And here's exactly why you can't think that. And he lists out all of their rebellion against God. He says, kind of take a second to remember what your resume actually is before God. It's not integrity. And so now, with that in mind, we come to this text, and Moses is face first in front of God. And what has brought him to this moment is this breakdown where God has said, I'm going to destroy you, Israel. I'm going to destroy this people. In fact, he even said, let me destroy this people. I'll just raise up a nation out of you, Moses. Like, here's an option for you. If you don't intercede for them, in fact, I'm asking you, don't intercede for them. I'll just destroy them, and I'll fulfill my promise just through you. This is a really, like, imagine yourself in an Israelite's shoes, like, in this time period. Like, yeah, like, you're messing around with calves. Maybe you were, like, really into it. Maybe you weren't. Maybe your neighbors were really into it. And, um, like, you all got caught up in this. Nobody stopped it. Next thing you know, Moses is coming down the mountain. You're like, oh, well, I thought that guy was gone. He's breaking the tablets. He's burning the calf. He melts it down. He throws it into the river. The Levites come. They strap swords on their sides at the command of God, and they walk through the camp, and they're taking out the people who instigated this rebellion. This is a very, like, you want to talk about national instability. This is national instability. They've literally, they're a fledgling nation of slaves who were brought out of Egypt, whose only national identity is that this God called them out. And now this very God has said, I'm against you. This is scary for them. This is really frightening. And as we think about this, we can think about, I think, our own standing before God. Okay, we can think about our own position, especially if, if we don't assume, right? If we, if we don't assume the forgiveness that's in Christ, if we think about what life is like without that, we might even think about, as a Christian, like where you stand in, in your, after your sin, right? Like Peter in his betrayal. You might think about, like, where exactly do we stand when we have offended a holy God and we have greatly deserved his wrath? What do we do? This text seeks to answer that. This text shows, it's, it's actually a really amazing text because it's doing two things. <clears throat> At the same time that it is, like, kind of showing the intercession that Moses made towards Yahweh so that um, he would relent from his anger and come and embrace them again and, and rebuild this relationship with them, it's also an argument to Israel. Right? Remember, this is the, the context of Moses' speech is they think, hey, we're so great, we did real good, so we're going to get the land. And Moses is saying, that's not the case. And this is part of that argument. Moses is saying, actually, all, this, all of this that you might have, that you stand to have, is they're standing right in the plains of Moab, looking across the Jordan River. There's Jericho, the gateway city into Canaan. And they have been promised that they will take it. But they just need to be faithful to God and the land is theirs. As they think about that, and Moses says, if you ever set foot in that land, which you will, it is 
completely by the grace of God. And so there is a confidence, really, that is built around this very, it's kind of paradoxical that this great instability is shown so that it can yield great confidence at the end because of the way it's resolved. And the point of it towards Israel is it was not resolved by an appeal to your righteousness. How was it resolved? How does wrath become renewal? That's what we're going to look at with a different color mark. How can wrath become renewal? How can wrath become renewal? I'll show you this in the text. There's four answers. The first is that wrath is recognized. Wrath is recognized. I want you guys to see that in verse 25 especially. And really all of this contextual buildup that I've been giving you. Like, when you come to this part of Moses' speech as you're sitting there in the audience listening to Moses, right? You hear this, and you you have freshly ringing in your ears every horrible rebellion that Moses just recounted, and you're not feeling great about yourself, right? And he's he's made it really clear that this wrath of God is well deserved, and he's detailed the tenuous nature of this negotiation with God that was happening. And notice verse 25 specifies Moses says, "I lay prostrate." before Yahweh for these 40 days and 40 nights because Yahweh had said he would destroy you. So this whole thing is framed around this statement by God. I'm going to destroy Israel. That is, this is honestly like the, the almost like the nearest to absolute death that the nation of Israel came, and probably in their entire existence. The moment where the God who supports them, the God of the universe, is saying he's going to destroy them. And so we have to recognize, and I think Moses recognized, and certainly the Levites recognized, and probably the nation of Israel, if they had any kind of self-awareness at all, recognized, God's angry. There's wrath here. And I think that that is a very important framing part of this narrative. Because without that recognition, nothing else really makes sense. Why would there be this intercession that happens? Why would there be this appeal to God's character that happens? And if there was not a problem to which that uh, appeal needed to be made, wrath needs to be recognized. And I think when we think about our, our own lives, when, when we think about the wrath of God, like I think too quickly as Christians, we want to resolve it, right? God's not angry, you know, because of Jesus. Jesus loves me. God loves me. You know, that's it. God's not angry. Um, but I think we need to recognize that with sin against the holy God, there is, the Bible says, a very real anger of God that, that goes out towards that. And we can't skip over that. I think we skip over that problem way too often. We jump to, okay, well, there's a solution being applied. And that might be true, but I think the fear of the Lord recognizes that this is real and that this is costly. That there is a breach 
whether, in a sense, whether saved or unsaved, that, that sin causes a breach with God. A breach against his infinite holiness and worth, which deserves infinite wrath. A breach that deserves no covenant with God, no relationship with him, and therefore um, no mercy, really. It's frightening. And I think unless we feel that, we don't, if unless we feel that insecurity, and I think as a society and culture, we do. I, I, you look around and you talk to people, and I just hear people talking a lot about like themselves and what they're going through, and like, we are not a very like stable mentally culture. I think, you know, you've got a lot of people, and this isn't necessarily a bad thing, but like, you know, a lot of people have therapy and these kind of things going on mentally because we recognize that there's a problem. We recognize that there's an instability. We recognize that there's an insecurity, but we're looking for a solution. It's, it's certainly better than burying it and pretending that we don't have any insecurities, right? And just putting on a front and saying, okay, like, everything's good, while inside we shudder. Certainly dealing with it is better, but we need to, we need to deal with where that comes from, where, where the deepest level of insecurity is, and where the deepest level of comfort then can be found. Because the foundation rock of any person's life has to be their relationship with God. And if that's stable and secure, apart from anything that you do, then you're secure. And if it's not, then you're not. And so this recognition, first off, of the rift that sin causes. And, and I think we can relate a lot to Israel as people who are in the church, right? Like, Israel knew right? Remember the scene. Moses had just, like, not Moses, but the Lord himself, Yahweh had, from the fire of the mountain, given them the Ten Commandments and told them, don't make a graven image. They heard it booming from fire in the mountain, and they're freaking out. And they say to Moses, Moses, you go. You talk to God. We can't handle it. We are pretty sure that if we keep listening to this fiery voice coming out of the mountain, we're going to die. And the Lord, far from being like, ah, oh, those scaredy cats, like, they can come near to me. It's like, no, actually, they're right. That's, that's good. I, I hope they fear me like that always. And within 40 days of that realization, that statement, that recognition of, of God and his power, that, that healthy, holy fear of him that respects him as who he is, and that asks for that intercessor, Within 40 days of that, they're breaching that commandment that they themselves heard from the mouth of God himself. It wasn't like they had a question about the clarity of the commandment of God. It wasn't like they had a question about the authority of the commandment of God. They just had a question as to whether or not they actually wanted to do it. Or was it expedient for the place that they were in at that point? And how about, how like, that's super relatable, right? Because... We, being in the church, having the scriptures, like knowing those kind of things, we're kind of in that boat. We know the commandment of God. And for the most part, I feel like a lot of us don't have a lot of question as to the authority of the word of God. We don't have a lot of question as to the clarity of the word of God. We kind of, we're on the same boat with that for the most part. But the, the struggle that we have is like literally just the, the applicability of that and like seeing that and like, Relating to that and doing that. 
And we don't think maybe it's expedient or comfortable or fitting in with our kind of priorities or our life at this time. And so we will tend to push it away. And, and so that's what Israel does, and that's what we do. And so they end up in this predicament. That's the first answer. How, do, how does wrath become renewal? You've got to see it first. A wrath that is never recognized is a wrath that is never re- removed and re- never renewed. It has to be admitted. Second, a mediator intercedes. The mediator intercedes. The, I, want to, I want to show you guys a little bit about the position that Moses has put in here. It's kind of unenviable in a way. And Moses is going to act as a go-between. He's going to act as the link between God and Israel. And he's going to stand, literally the psalm says, in the breach. Right. The idea is that this sin has caused a breach and a defensive wall against the wrath of God. And at any moment, this wrath can come pouring through that gap and destroy Israel. And in very picturesque language, one of the Psalms speaks about Moses coming and standing in that breach and resisting and closing up that gap against the wrath of God. A mediator comes in and stands in and intercedes for them. It's it's kind of interesting. There's a couple things that are going on here. Um, I, I, I wonder if you noticed earlier when the Lord was talking to Moses, he said um, in verse 12, he called Israel your people, Moses, whom you brought out of Egypt. He disowns them. He says, no, nah, actually, Moses, it's your people. It's not my people. And then he refers to them in verse 15 as this people. Still very, like, casually offhand. Almost like, to the extent that I got to know them, I just saw that they're real stubborn. Thanks. He's he's pushing this off. And so Moses ends up in this weird spot where, like, he's standing on the side with Israel, right? God is identifying him with Israel and saying, these are your people. And so he stands on the human side of it. At the same time, if we think about it, he stands on God's side as well. Because God himself had commissioned Moses, remember? The burning bush says, hey, like, you're going to bring out this people for me. You're going to do these things. And not only that, there's this really interesting phrase where he says in verse 14, leave me alone, Moses, so that I can destroy them. This idea of leave me alone is, is he's asking Moses, don't intercede. Don't intercede for Israel. Which is kind of a goading way to get Moses to intercede. Right? Why would he say that? He's God. He doesn't need... Moses to withhold his intercession for God to eradicate them. He can just do it. He's got it. But he doesn't do that. He, he's kind of like backhandingly inviting Moses' intercession in this moment. And so Moses kind of ends up as this figure, both as his background, because of his, his identification with Israel, because of this plea from God, also because of verse 10 of chapter 10, where it says, um, Yahweh listened to me at that time also. What is he, why is he saying that time also? He's talking about this was the role he had initially. That he was going up the mountain, 
And, and remember, the, the people of Israel had commissioned Moses and said, hey, you go up and talk to God on our behalf. And so Moses, from the people of Israel, from God, from that specific commission from God, from the specific commission from Israel, by nature of what he had already done, he stands as a mediator. Someone who is going to kind of negotiate what's going to go on next between God and Israel. And it's really important that he have ties both to God in this moment and to man. I think that the, the comparison here is, is obvious that Christ is a better mediator, right? Hebrews chapter 3 says this specifically, if you need you know, a New Testament reference for that idea. But just as Moses was faithful, Christ is the better and greater mediator. And that was that's so necessary to this narrative. This whole story is based around verse 26. Moses saying, I pray to Yahweh. He says, I pray to Yahweh. Oh, Lord Yahweh, do not destroy your people and your heritage, whom you've redeemed through your greatness, whom you brought out of Egypt with a mighty hand. Remember your servants, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Don't regard the stubbornness of this people or their wickedness or their sin. What's the land from which you brought us, say, because Yahweh was not able to bring them into the land which he promised them, because he hated them. He's brought them out to put them to death in the wilderness. For they are your people and your heritage, whom you brought out by your great power, by your outstretched arm. Moses, as an intercessor between God and man, stands in and pleads for them. And without that, without that intercession, there's... There's no, no one to speak for this wrath. There's no one to come, like make a case and a plea against this wrath that's coming against them. But what's beautiful about this is God himself has set up this intercessor. God himself has created someone to petition against his own anger so that his love against his anger and above his anger and in spite of his anger, his grace could extend all the more, even as sin increased. And Moses stands in this place for Israel. But I think as we read this in the, in the New Testament era, we read this and we think about the way Jesus stands in this gap for us. Romans 8 says that he is interceding for us. And I, and I think about a similar plea that Jesus can make, as Moses makes here, for us when we sin. When we falter, when we fail, you want to talk about stability in your relationship with God. You want to talk about how do we deal with these instances of breaches in a relationship with God. As we have, by faith, united ourselves to Christ and his grace, Jesus himself is the one making this prayer. Perfectly God, perfectly man. He can stand in that gap. He can withhold the wrath of God. And he can do this because of a special reason. We're going to get on to the, the next answer. How can wrath become renewal? First, wrath is recognized. Second, a mediator intercedes. But third, and this is really the crux of it, the amazing one, grace gloriously abounds. Grace gloriously abounds. This is uh, 926 through 10 one. We're going to break down a little bit of what, what Moses says here. And once again, this is a really interesting thing because it's two things are happening here. One, Moses is giving a narrative recap on his prayer that he made to God. 
for them in this instance. And at the same time, he's still arguing to Israel why it's not because of your righteousness that you're going to stand in this land. It is not because of your righteousness that you have any hope of staying in the land or even getting in the land. And as we read this, we can see that it's not because of our righteousness that we have any standing with God. But there is a standing. And that standing is this grace. This grace which overcomes and beats out this heinous sin that knows that it's it's transgression, like high-handed iniquity. Knowing the standard of God, transgressing it anyway. And grace is covering it. Let's look at it. kind of how, how does Moses argue this. He says, I prayed to Yahweh. Oh, Lord Yahweh, don't destroy your people and your heritage. I love that first off. <clears throat> he's taking Israel and he's like, okay, God, like, I know you said this was my people, but let me just go ahead and put this back in your hands. This is, he's like, these are, I, I, I can't be called the leader of these people. You're the leader of these people. These are your people, and these are your heritage. And there's this, this um, idiom that he's actually using here where he talks about, do not destroy your heritage. Um, it's very similar to what um, the relative of Boaz says about Ruth in the book of Ruth, where he says, I can't, I can't um, redeem Ruth, else I'll destroy my heritage. The idea is that um, he has his special investment in his own personal property and land and that kind of stuff, and by taking on Ruth in that instance, it would put that at severe risk, right, where he would lose that, and he says, don't destroy this special people to you, God, you have invested so much in them, you've given them everything, he says, if you destroy that, like, you would be losing all of that, and he he doesn't want that loss for God, he points out the redemption, he says, whom you have redeemed through your greatness, whom you have brought out of Egypt with a mighty hand. He says, God, you already like, have done so many amazing things for this people. You have redeemed them. And this grace that you could have for them is based on that redemption. It's based on that earlier showing of power. The idea that God has already invested in them. He's already chosen them. He has already worked to save them. So how much more now that they're in this crisis and they're, they're in this point, he says, you can save them still. They're still yours. Second, he's going to back this up a little bit more for God. He says, remember your servants, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. This is a really important point. And what's really amazing is Moses is making a point that Paul himself makes in Galatians. That the law, which came 400-something years after the promise, cannot annul that promise. He's saying, God... Remember your servants. He's saying, remember the promise you made to them. Remember that you already have a covenant relationship based on the promise that you made with Abraham when you walked in between, right? You went through that covenant ceremony. Remember when they they cut the the calf and then there's the two parts and Abraham goes to sleep and and, and God unilaterally walks through it. And Moses says, listen, this all stands on a promise that you made. Remember that promise. This does not stand on on their law-keeping. This does not stand on on this Ten Commandments, even. Moral as they may be. It stands on promise. Remember that promise, God. And he says, don't regard the stubbornness of this people or their wickedness or their sin. Um, In the midst of this, 
he's, he's making a plea for mercy. So we've had redemption, we've had promise, we've had mercy. This plea for mercy is based a lot on, remember, God had revealed himself to Moses. Moses said, I can't leave these people, show me your glory. And God himself had said, this is my character. And he tells him, and one of the chief things that God emphasizes in that entire exposition of his character is, I forgive wickedness and sin. And so now Moses is saying, God, I know who you are. You've told me who you are. You're the one who forgives sin. Forgive this sin. Please, God, you are the one who redeems people from wickedness and sin. You can forgive it. And then finally, he's like, he's like kind of almost like working down layers of, of this argument, getting from probably his weakest argument to his strongest. And now he gets down to one of his strongest arguments. It's probably the whole thing together, you know, kind of it's mutually supporting. But this last argument, verse 28, says, Lest the land from which you brought us say, because Yahweh was not able to bring them into the land that he promised them. And because he hated them, he has brought them out to put them to death in the wilderness. He's saying that, and this is something that's really important to remember in all of the Exodus narrative, God's purpose is global. It's not just Israel. Israel's the focal point of salvation, but the important thing is through Israel, God is making his glory known to the nations. He's doing that through the plagues in Egypt, through the redemption, through, honestly, slaughter, okay, Deuteronomy 7 um, and Exodus, like, he's doing that and showing that he, he is more powerful than all the gods of the nations, and he is the one through, mercy is, through whom mercy is given. He is the one through whom salvation may be had. He is the only true God, and he is making that case through Israel to the nations. And Moses says, if you destroy this people, you're going to thwart that purpose. And this is, this is huge, because if you think about it, God can still fulfill the promise to the, to the patriarchs through Moses. He's already said that. God can redeem, and, and he has redeemed them, but they've transgressed him. He can have mercy on Moses, right? He doesn't have to do any of these other things. But his whole purpose in this is that his glory may be known that many would come to him. That by showing his glory to the nations, people like Rahab would see the Israelites approaching and would repent and would join him. He's saving people. And Moses says, if you do this, this will go against that purpose. He argues on the basis of the name of God. He says, you have, by starting a relationship with this people, you have joined yourself in relationship with them. You have joined your name and your glory to him, to theirs, to their name, to their well-being. And so, as you're hearing this as an Israelite, right, you think, put yourself back in their sandals for a second, and you're hearing this, you hear, we were really close to the edge. We were, we were this close. To, to being wiped out. Like, if Moses hadn't said this, God had already suggested our complete eradication so he could bring up Moses. That's, that's scary. Like, we weren't going to get into this land, actually. We had no integrity. We had no righteousness. And we were this close to not even existing, just being under the wrath of God. But then, God's grace, through intercession, through mediation, abounds and covers as far as the sin has gone and it covers it. How does it do that? This is a problem, right? 
we should see and feel this tension that, that Israel has done something very heinous against God, right? If God is who he says he is in Deuteronomy, which is the divine sovereign, the great king over all nations, but specifically has taken this vassal state Israel that will um, be his servants, right? And this is a well-known kind of ancient Near Eastern relationship. Their act against him had like specifically maligned his glory, his worth, and his power. And for him to just kind of skirt over it almost agrees with it. Almost agrees like, yeah, like think about it. Like if if another nation in the ancient Near East like stopped paying tribute to you know their uh, you know king state over them, that state like came down against them. Why? Because they, there could not be a nation that does this and says that this is possible without retribution. Otherwise, every other nation that's under their power will be like, yeah, it's free to rebel. Like, whatever. He just forgives it. It's fine. Is God teaching in this moment that he forgives the sin and he shows mercy and he renews this covenant? Because that's what's happened. Verse 1, at that time, Yahweh said to me, cut for yourself two tablets of stone like them first. He says, all right. We're going to renew this covenant. Is God saying sin is okay? Now, he he's, gives Israel through the rest of Deuteronomy. We're going to see a lot of pictures that say that it's not, that it requires death, that it requires blood, that it requires sacrifice. And that's why when, when we who have the full picture of God's revelation need to see this mediator, it points to Jesus. And this grace, it flows from Jesus. It flows from the cross. Any grace that you read of in the Bible at all where a sin is not punished, that grace is one on the cross. It was Christ that bore that down. It was Christ whose sacrifice could redeem anyone. Where God's wrath is poured out so that forgiveness can be offered. And so they stand on the grace and the mercy of God, which stands by the sacrifice of Jesus. And that is actually a far better standing than their righteousness, which Moses has shown is pretty flaky at best. Like, maybe like standing on like a wet frosted flake, you know? Like, that's, that's not what you want to build your house with. That is not great supporting material. I'm not an architect, but I don't need to be an engineer to figure that one out, right? If you want solid foundation for your relationship with the Lord, it has to be on the grace of Christ. This is really similar to what Paul argues in Romans 5, that because of the sacrifice of Christ, because of what he has done, and that's where the title comes from, this grace in which you stand, it's from Romans 5. The idea is that this, this standing that they have is based on the grace of Christ, and this grace, wherever sin abounded, grace abounded all the more, and, and covers it, and quenches it, and restores that relationship with God through grace. Because of the ultimately the, the faith that we have in Christ, uniting us with the mediation of Christ and the intercession of Christ, we can stand in the grace of God. But then what happens, right? What next? Wrath is in a sense now removed, but how does this become renewal? Right? It's like they dodge the bullet, but how do they move on? That's what the rest in chapter 10 is all about. I'm going to show you this really quick. And the fourth answer, how can wrath become renewal? Finally, renewal has begun. 
We start with wrath. We end with renewal. At that time, he always said to me, and I want you guys to notice all of the references to like before, like the first time. I'll kind of emphasize it here. That time, he always said to me, cover yourself two tablets of stone like the first, and come up to me on the mountain and make an ark of wood, and I will write on the tablets the words that were on the first tablets that you broke, and you shall put them in the ark. So I made an ark of acacia wood, and I put two tablets of stone like the first, and went up to the mountain with the two tablets in my hand. And he wrote on the tablets, in the same writing as before, the Ten Commandments that Yahweh had spoken to you on the mountain, out of the midst of fire on the day of the assembly. And Yahweh gave them to me. And then I turned and I came down the mountain and put the tablets in the ark that I had made. And there they are, as Yahweh commanded me. I'm going to keep reading this section. The people of Israel journeyed from Birach ben and to Maserah. There Aaron died, and there he was buried. And his son Eleazar ministered his priest in his place. From there they journeyed to Gudgadah, and from Gudgadah to Jachbatha, a land with brooks of water. At that time, Yahweh set apart the tribe of Levi to carry the Ark of the Covenant of Yahweh, to stand before Yahweh, to minister to him, and to bless in his name to this day. Therefore, Levi has no portion or inheritance with his brothers. Yahweh is his inheritance, as Yahweh your God said to him. I myself stayed on the mountain as at the first time, 40 days and 40 nights. And Yahweh listened to me at that time also. Yahweh was unwilling to destroy you. And Yahweh said to me, Arise, go on your journey at the head of the people, so that they may go in and possess the land which I swore to their fathers to give them. So this last section kind of speaks to this renewal. And remember that we can follow, there's actually a really strong concentration of the word tablets in this section of, of Deuteronomy. And the point is, we can actually follow these, these actual pieces of stone which were kind of like the legal contract. And when, when Moses breaks them, there's actually a break in the narrative at that point, and the tablets aren't mentioned for a number of verses until this intercession happens. And then as soon as the intercession is done, the tablets are resumed again, and they're being cut anew. And the idea is that this contract with God had been torn up and thrown on the ground. And that's where they stand in this like insecure, unstable place. And through the grace of God, through the wrath being recognized, through the mediator, through the grace, the contract is rewritten and it's renewed. And new tablets are made. And they're the same as the first ones. He didn't change anything. He didn't, he didn't lessen it. He didn't redraw the terms. He completely forgave them. He gives them this law. And he does some other new things too. Um, the interesting thing, verse 5, this, this phrase, and there they are. The idea that he's, he's like, he's telling historical narrative, right? So just like you guys are hearing this as history, they're hearing this as history too. And, but then when he says there they are, he's tying it right in with where they're standing. And he says, you guys right now stand in this grace. You guys right now, as you're about to enter this land, this renewal that happens right here is the basis of your relationship with God. And that, that's powerful for them, right? To, to be able to hear that this is, this is us, right? And that's why, you know, we keep kind of pulling out, like, this is, like, for us. This is for us. This is for us, right? Everything that was written before is written for our instruction, Paul says. Like, this is, this is for us. And so when they see this, when they see this historical event, they realize that this is actually talking about exactly the grace in which they stand. 
Moses says a couple more things. Um, there's actually a brief aside that's not Moses speaking in verses 6 and 7. Any of you guys have like parentheses in your Bible or in the text that you're looking at there? Yeah, so Deuteronomy, as, as you know, like a huge, huge chunk of it is ser- like sermons from Moses. There's actually four of them. Um, and that's like the lion's share of Deuteronomy. But like, um, it's really clear that at least the end of Deuteronomy and some other portions sprinkled in were edited together by a later editor. Um, probably was Joshua um, who edited it together. We know that there was a book. By the end of Deuteronomy, the, this uh, text is already referred to as being in book form. So it might not have been the final book form of Deuteronomy, but like a lion's share of Deuteronomy existed as book form at the end of all of these speeches before they went over into the land. Um, and we've talked about this a little bit before, but it's been a while ago. Um, probably the, the dates for the final composition of Deuteronomy is as early as Joshua and no later than David is, is kind of your section here because um, it looks very strongly like David had a copy of this law based on his actions. Um, and so there's editing that goes on in this book, and that's under God's inspiration as well. Um, the editor is actually just kind of wrapping up a loose end right here, where Aaron, in the previous text, had, had been described as being an instigator, really, of this, of this rebellion. And how far did this go, and how, how far was this renewal? And Aaron is kind of caught up as part of this renewal, and he is consumed, in a sense, in the wrath of God, not immediately, because um, Moses intercedes from him, and God stays his wrath, but he dies. He cannot go into the promised land, and a new priesthood is raised up in the wilderness. And so this is brand new. Now, the editor might have thought to do this because Moses speaks of a different renewal, too, that happens here. Now, my, my Bible, I'll have an ESV, and so it actually puts the end of the parentheses at the end of verse 9. I think that's inaccurate. I think the parenthetical ends at verse 7. Um, there's the main reason for that is two reasons in verse eight. He says, at that time, Yahweh set apart the tribe of Levi. This happens in the incident of the calf in, um, Exodus, I think it's, uh, 32, 33, somewhere in the 30s in Exodus. I was reading it this morning, but I forget the number. Um, um, the Levites are the ones who, who basically respond to Moses' call. Moses says, hey, whoever's for Yahweh, to me. Like, we're, we're going to deal with this. And the Levites are the ones who respond, and God blesses them in response to that. And this is connected here. Um, so that is connected more with the cap incident, right, verse 5, than the Aaron dying incident, verse 6. So already it kind of looks like it, it kind of flows with what Moses is saying. And then the other thing is in verse 10, you'll notice Moses makes a um, kind of, he emphasizes the first person. Um, and so he says, I myself, with that reflexive, I myself stayed on the mountain as at the first time. So um, he's, he's kind of re- resuming from after talking about the Levites, resuming the narrative about himself. Um, so it makes sense based on the timeline and based on that resumptive uh, reflexive, I myself, that verse 8 and 9 are actually also part of Moses' actual original dialogue to Israel. Um, and when and in that Levite part portion, he describes the Levites... And all of the things that he describes them as doing is, are as covenant ministers. They're ministering around the ark. They're ministering to Yahweh. They are blessing Israel in the same. So, like, they are standing as, like, teachers of the covenant, as um, people who will bless the people, right, and intercede for the people, who will minister to do the things that Yahweh needs them to do. So 
Um, this is all covenant renewal kind of language that, that with this renewed agreement between God that he will have a relationship with his people, he provides them a new priesthood as the editor puts in, and then Moses himself is pointing out that the Levites on this day, being for God, um, they, they stand to minister in between God and man in a way. And because of this, they don't have any land. Yahweh himself is their, is their inheritance. Which is a beautiful thing. Like the, He's talking about how precious God is and God should be to all Israel as the Levites will show and, and instruct through their very being. And so then he wraps up, I myself stayed on the mountain and, and he listened to me again and he was unwilling to destroy you. So he's just kind of summing up, summing up in these last couple of verses. It says, arise, go on your journey at the head of the people. So here it is. They're moving forward. They get to go into the land. And, and notice the very last phrase, which I swore to their fathers to give them. He bases it on promise again. You see that promise is, is beating out the law. Not that the law isn't important, right? He gives them the covenant again. He, he carves out the tablets of stone. He's going to say, verse 12 is going to be, what does Yahweh require of you? Right? Almost like a Romans 6 thing where he's like, Okay, uh, should we sin so that grace may come? By no means. Like, here's what God requires of you now that you have experienced his grace. But we don't stand in our relationship with God based on our righteousness. That's his point. We stand based on grace. We stand based on a promise unilaterally made to God that he did not have to make. He made it because he loved us. And he loves us Right? Remember, Deuteronomy 7 says, because he loves us. That's an amazing thing. And so, like Peter, right, who hears for that third time, Peter, do you love me? And he says, Lord, you know I love you. And Peter says, or Jesus says to him, feed my sheep. Jesus calling them back to ministry, saying, you are redeemed. You do stand in my grace. Now you have ministry to do because you stand in that grace, because I've renewed you, because of the sacrifice and that by death on the cross and everything that happened in the midst of your betrayal. I myself I'm, was paying for that betrayal, <clears throat> dying for that betrayal, redeeming you in the midst of that betrayal. Because of your faith in me now, I have interceded before God for that betrayal. And my grace covers your betrayal. And so you are renewed, Peter. Now you can go and feed my sheep and you can minister. Guys, that's what this text should do for us as well. Whoever is feeling like the guilt of a, of a life that maybe doesn't live up to God's expectations, probably a lot of us feel guilt because they don't live up to our expectations. We should kind of leave that behind because that's just our own legalism. But whoever is feeling that insecurity and that instability, this isn't going to magic cure all it. But this is the answer, to find refuge from the wrath of God in the intercession of God, in the grace of God, found at the cross of Jesus. Where he dies, he takes on the wrath of God, and he, because of God's great mercy, because of his great character, unleashes grace that covers all of our sin. And where sin abounds, even high-handed sin, even knowing the commandment of God, even looking God in the face and saying, you know what, I know better, I'm going to do different, it can cover that, and it renews that. And it does that not just so that you can have like some existential stability, but so that you can serve, so that 
you can minister so that you can tell others about the great grace of your God, about the amazing wonder of the love that God has displayed towards the world in Jesus, about the forgiveness of sins available to anyone who has faith in him. You can serve and you can minister and you can counsel and you can admonish and you can rebuke and you can do all of these things that the text calls us to do for one another and caring for one another. You're called then to a community just like Peter is, to feed his sheep, to care for him, to be an integral part of that. And you stand on that, not, not on the basis of your righteousness. You don't know God better. You don't um, have you know a greater Christian background. You don't have this great integrity. You don't have... You have nothing. Whatever you would count as gain, count it all as loss, so that you can know Christ and his righteousness can be covered by his grace. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you show us that we don't stand based on our goodness, but we stand in your grace. And because of your grace, we do stand. And I pray that for any of us here who struggle or, or worry or doubt, that we would find refuge and the grace depicted in your son, Jesus. And Lord, I pray from that refuge that we would seek out ways to continue to live in that renewal, to live out your covenant, to walk with you, to serve you by loving others, other people that maybe we don't get along with or maybe aren't cool or maybe isn't easy for us. Maybe they're, sin they're sinful against us. Maybe they hurt us. But but because of the grace we find in you, we can serve. I pray that um, this text would have a profound implication on um, the way we, we think about ourselves, that as this text has taught us, we won't have self-righteousness. Lord, it's so easy for us to be like the Pharisee who says, I, I've done so many great things for you, God. Lord, help us instead to be like the publican who just throws ourselves completely on your mercy. And, and rises and stands in the light of that mercy. We thank you for your son. We thank you for that mercy. Help us to live in that grace this week. In your name I pray, amen. Praise God from whom all blessings. Thanks for stopping by College Ministry today. If you'd like to reach out to me, you can find me on Twitter, at Trevor Aiken, or you can even leave a voice recording through the Anchor mobile app. If you'd like to get in touch with my home church, Mission Road Bible Church, you can find all their information at mrbckc.org.